So I thought I'd start with an easy question this evening. What is the purpose of the universe? Or you might say, what's the purpose of your life? Or you could even ask, what is God doing in his creation? What's it all about? Why are we here? Why are you here? Why is anything here? And I think that uh, many people assume that God's purpose in making the universe is basically so that people have the best time of it possible. Oh, we might not actually say that, but our attitudes reveal that sort of thinking. So I guess that most people will assume that the greatest tragedy in the world is human death. That's the ultimate tragedy in creation. Oh, we assume that most suffering is pointless and unjust. We assume that God would really like everyone in the world to follow him, but he's just not quite capable of pulling it off. He can't quite convince them. So sadly, some people don't follow him. And all those assumptions have one thing in common. We assume that the welfare of humanity as we see it is the point of the universe. What we feel would be good for people is really what it's all about. And even though we might say in our well-studied Christian understanding of life, oh, it's all about God's glory, we actually presume God is most glorified by people having the best time of it as we think they should have the best time of it. God wants us all to live long, healthy, suffering-free lives, but he's just not quite up to the job. Uh, The problem, of course, with that is the Bible. (laughs) Because the Bible gives us a very different God and a very different purpose to the universe. The Bible shows us from beginning to end a God who is totally sovereign even over the sparrows dropping out of the trees. There is nothing that happens that is outside of his control. It tells us of a universe where the purpose is to bring God glory, which is actually about him and him receiving the praise and honor that he is due simply because he is God. And it tells us that the way he does that is by bringing a people into relationship with himself, by demonstrating his love and his faithfulness to them, but that he also does that by justly punishing people for the way that they have deliberately ignored and rejected him, their loving creator. And Exodus 7 through to 10, we see that God, the God who is rescuing and the God who is judging, the God who is saving and the God who is punishing. And we see it as really the writer of Exodus, Moses, tells us why it is God is bringing judgment upon the Egyptians. And we've got three simple headings here as we look at Exodus tonight. And the first is this. We've got the God who rescues through judgment. Then we're going to see the God who reveals through judgment. And finally, the God who rules through judgment. Because look at chapter 7 and verse 4. As God, just before our reading, explains what he's about to do. He says this to Moses, picking it up just In verse 4, he says, Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. 
And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. I will bring out my divisions through mighty acts of judgment. You see, judgment here on the Egyptians is the way that God rescues his people. If you uh, haven't been around the story so far in the book of Exodus, is that God's people, the Israelites, are groaning under slavery in Egypt. And he has remembered his covenant with them. His covenant promise to take them as a great nation and to put them into a land, a beautiful land. Now, when the Bible says God remembered, that doesn't mean that he'd sort of forgotten as though he was sitting up in heaven having a nice time of it, and he suddenly heard some whinging down in Egypt, and he thought, my goodness me, what's that noise? Oh, the the Israelites, I remember. I promised them to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey, and they appear to be stuck in Egypt. It doesn't mean he remembered like that. It means he remembers as he acts according to what he's promised. So he's called Moses to take a message to Pharaoh, We saw that in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, and they say this. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. See, Pharaoh is not too keen on losing his best brick makers So God says, I'm going to bring judgment on the Egyptians so they let the Israelites go. I'm going to rescue my people by defeating their enemies. So he brings the plagues we read about tonight. The Nile is turned to blood in chapter 7. Frogs, gnats, flies in chapter 8. The livestock die and people get disgusting boils and then hail comes that flattens everything in chapter 9. And then a plague of locusts that consumes the rest of the crops before a darkness that you can feel comes in chapter 10. And then next week, we'll look at the worst plague of all, the death of the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians as God rescues his people through judgment. And that is the pattern of the Bible, my friends, whether we like it or not. Every time God rescues his people, He does it through judgment. So Noah is saved in an ark with his wife and his sons and their their wives. And every single human being other than that family on the earth dies through drowning because of their wickedness. Or we, we celebrate the famous story of David and Goliath. We tell it again and again in Sunday school. It's the time when my kids' heads sort of come up as we're reading the Bible because we remember it. But actually, all we remember is a pebble hitting Goliath in the head. Most children's Bibles leave out the fact David cut his head off with his own sword. And if you're a Philistine, 1 Samuel tells us their dead were strewn along the Shariam Road from Gath to Ekron. And the Bible says when the Lord Jesus returns to judge the world, when he takes his people to be with him in a beautiful new creation, a place where there is no more evil, that is only made possible because he will judge all those who have not bowed the knee to him and rid the world of evil once and for all as they experience the terrible punishment of eternal death. They know forever what it is to be punished by the Lord. Now, you might say, well, that's not fair. And you know what? 
You'd be absolutely right. Because Noah, he didn't deserve to be saved. Within a few weeks of uh, coming out of the ark, he was lying drunk and naked in a tent. David, he didn't deserve to be king of Israel. He used his kingship to commit adultery and murder the woman's husband. And the Israelites, they certainly don't deserve to be rescued from Egypt. You're going to find within two verses of them getting out of Egypt, once they've sung their song of happiness, they're grumbling and disobeying God in the desert. No, throughout the Bible, every human being deserves God's just judgment. And if you're a Christian here tonight, so do you. So do I. But he has rescued us. And of course, we know he's rescued us through the greatest act of judgment seen in the Bible, by bringing judgment upon his own son. He did it at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God always rescues through judgment. But his amazing love and great grace is that rather than us, his enemies, bearing the judgment we deserve, no, he brought that upon his one and only precious son in our place. Your rescue was through judgment. My rescue was through judgment, a judgment God took upon himself. So actually what we have here in Exodus is a great reminder of the love God shows his people, a love that is distinctive to them, a love that means he rescues them when they don't deserve it, a love that should humble us when we realize that by nature we deserve judgment. The only reason we don't get it is because we are his people. And that's the only reason the Israelites are spared. Did you know that when we came to chapter 8 and verse 22? Have a look at chapter 8 and verse 22. What does the Lord say? He says, but on that day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there. So they will know I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. Not a fly seen in the land of Goshen. Why? Because the Israelites are his people. No other reason. The same distinctions made in the fifth and the seventh, the ninth and the tenth plagues. And you can read Exodus again and again. In fact, you could read the whole te Old Testament again and again, and you'll never find a good reason why God chooses Israel as his people. There's nothing about them that makes them attractive. In fact, God tells us that in the book of Deuteronomy. This is what he says about his people. Deuteronomy 7.7, 7, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But, because of the, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of savior, slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, that is grace. No reason, just love and promise. So, so what does that mean if you're not a Christian here this evening? If at the moment... All you sit under is the prospect of God's judgment and not his rescue. Well, there's a hint here in Exodus 9 and verse 20. Have a look at Exodus 9 and verse 20. You see, there are some in Egypt who respond differently. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside but those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. 
You see, some, when the hail comes, they fear what God has said and therefore listen to Him and escape His judgment. And if you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, the starting place for you is the Word of God. Will you listen to what He says about His rescue and about His judgment? It made the difference between life and death for the slaves and the livestock of these Egyptian masters. And it can make the difference between life and death for you. Because the the starting place with God is taking His Word seriously. And it's in His Word you'll find the God who rescues people through judgment. Who rescues even you through the judgment of His Son at the cross. And we were hearing this morning from Richard how there's this great resource that I'd love to use with you. Maybe a Christian friend would love to use with you. Word one-to-one where you could sit down and just read of the God who sent his son to rescue you in John's gospel. But why not think of doing that tonight? Just taking the opportunity with a Christian friend or, or come and see me afterwards and we can go for a coffee and we can begin to read of the God who promises to rescue people through judgment. But that's not going to be the case if you won't listen. And actually, Pharaoh's problems start because he won't listen. He won't heed the warnings of God. And if people continue to reject God, if they won't listen to him, then they'll only experience the next two results of the judgment we see in these verses. It's the Lord who reveals through judgment. God rescues his people, but to everyone he reveals who he is. Turn back to chapter 7. And verse 4 and 5 again. You see, in verse 4, he says, I'm going to bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. What will be the result in verse 5? And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. See, that that was the purpose of turning the Nile to blood or the frogs or the the gnats, the flies, the livestock dropping dead, the boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness. It was to show the Egyptians that the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, is the only true and living God. And so by the time we get to chapter 9 and verse 14, we read, This time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. God shows that he's God by bringing judgment on people. In fact, the plagues that God brings here are no accident. Uh, Reflecting on this, the book of Numbers says that God brought judgment on the gods of the Egyptians. In other words, the Egyptians worshipped the river Nile, and so God turned it to blood. And the Egyptians used to worship the sun, so God turned it off for three days. He took their gods and he showed how pointless they were. And the Egyptian magicians, they have a, a good go at playing God, don't they? They manage it with the staff and the snake. They can turn a bit of water into blood. They can conjure up even a few frogs. But in the end, the power of the world can never match the power of God. And so when it comes to the gnats, they've got no hope. 
Oh, our world today, it might be able to claim to control the seas or to predict earthquakes or to end disease or to provide peace for you or to give you comfort or to push your death into the distance. But in the end, they're all lies. There is only one God who rules his creation, the Lord. And only he has demonstrated he's in charge of history. Are the Egyptians in Exodus realize that? What do they say in Exodus 8, 19, they say, this is the finger of God. You see, to Pharaoh's question, who's the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. The Lord says, I'm God. And through these mighty acts, you will see who I am and you'll see why you need to obey me. His judgment's total. Did you notice that as we went through the plagues? Time and time again, there's this refrain, isn't there? Exodus tells us everything was destroyed. Everyone was covered in boils. All the livestock died. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. And no one escapes the the judgment of the living God. And when he pours out his anger, it shows us who he is. And again... We see that at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, when God poured out his judgment upon his son for us, when the innocent Jesus died, well, like the tenth plague, the sky was turned black so we would know that here was the God who ruled the heavens and the earth. And the ground shook. And Matthew records this in Matthew 27, 54. When the centurion And those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened. They were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. God reveals through his judgment. And that's what's going to happen on the last day. On the last day, there will not be one human being when the Lord Jesus returns to judge who does not realize who the living God is. In fact, that's the primary purpose of final judgment. Final judgment comes not so that God can decide who's lived a good life and a bad life. It comes so that God can reveal his character as the one who punishes evil and the one who in love has saved his people. So how do we respond to the judgment of God? How do we respond as as Christians? Have Have a look at chapter 10. And verses 1 and 2, God tells the Israelites the response he wants from them. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I've hardened his heart and the hearts of officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them. That, here's the reason, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them that you may know that I am the Lord. When was the last time you took your children aside or your grandchildren and said there is a living God who judges people in perfect righteousness with a fearful and terrible judgment? I guess most of us, if you're anything like me, that's the one bit of the Bible we skip. It's the one bit of the Bible most children's Bibles skip. And yet, 
that seems to be the one thing that the Lord says the Israelites should be teaching their children and grandchildren. The hard bits, the grisly bits, the unsanitary bits, the fact that rejecting God leads to being punished. You see, in Israelite Sabbath school, the plagues were on the syllabus because it reveals to us the mighty nature of God. And you see what we do when we sanitize our God is we make him a comfortable, cozy, little, unscary God who we can stick in a box. The God we might have time for. The God we can bolt on to our comfortable, middle-class, Western lives. The God who, well, if you, you want to follow him, it's a decision of faith. It's up to you, darling. Not the God who really created the whole world and rules all things. Not the God who will hold every human being to account. Not the God who holds your body together, the atoms of your existence, by the power of your will as you sit there now. We take our God and we shrink him into something that is manageable rather than doing what the Bible is, which is explode him into something that is entirely beyond our ken. And actually what we do when we do that is we reduce the beauty of who God is. We reduce the wonder that this holy, awesome, powerful, distant God would come and become a man and dwell amongst us. We reduce the enormity of love that would bear such a terrible wrath that we deserve in our place. You see, when we diminish the enormity of our God and the seriousness of sin and the terror of his judgment, we actually diminish the beauty of his love and the wonder of his grace. We diminish him in every aspect of who he is. 1 Peter 1.17 says this to us as Christians, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Our Father in heaven is the mighty, impartial judge of all humanity. And he so loved us, he sent his Son to bear that judgment in our place. And so says Peter, have a right attitude of who your God is. Live your life here as though you were different from the world around you. Live your life here because you know this awesome God, the Lord who you just don't mess with. And again, what if you're not a Christian here tonight? Well, if you begin to understand the seriousness of being on the wrong side of this God... You might think of responding as Pharaoh does. Look at chapter 10 and verse 16. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God that to take this deadly plague away from me. That's, that's the right response to the living God. To confess. To ask for his forgiveness. To, to come to him and say, I realize I'm a sinner, a rebel against you. To treat him as God. And the great promise is that for all those who do that and trust that the Lord Jesus Christ has borne God's righteous judgment for them, forgiveness is available. Sadly, for Pharaoh, forgiveness is short-lived. 
because we read on in verse 19, and the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. And here we face the biggest challenge, I think, to our thinking in this passage. If, if you don't think what has happened already is a tough challenge, I, I think our third heading is the hard thing. It's the God who rules through judgment. You see, it's one thing to see that God's rescued his people and brought them through, through judgment into, into salvation. It's another thing to see God demonstrates who he is in the way that he judges evil, that he, he so loves his world that he will not tolerate the terrible evil perpetuated by human beings in rejecting him. He will righteously judge that. But I think it's far harder to stomach this. It's not hard because I think this is difficult to understand. It's hard because I think it's difficult to accept that God rules the world and he is in utter control of it. And yet we are still totally responsible for everything we do. Because as we read Exodus 7 to 10, there's not really any doubt who's in control, is it? (laughs) The Lord's the one who has a mighty hand. He controls nature as he wills. He brings plague after plague with seemingly no effort at all, and then he ends plague after plague with no effort at all. He brings one of the the greatest superpowers of the ancient world to its knees. And there's also no doubt that Pharaoh is arrogant. I mean, Pharaoh is only sorry when things are going badly. As soon as the situation gets a bit better, well, he's a defiant despot again. Look what happens at the end of the plague of the frogs in chapter 8, verse 15. When he saw there was relief, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. The same thing happens in chapter 8 and verse 32. We read, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. And it'd be easy to read these chapters and think, well, what we've got here is a a classic tussle of good versus evil. We've got the Lord, the good God. He takes on Pharaoh, the bad king. And who's going to win? But that's not what's happening, is it? It's not God exerting his rule in a sort of tough-fought contest. It's not that it takes him ten attempts to finally get Pharaoh to free the Israelites. There's no contest. God rules from beginning to end. He's in complete control. And actually, we, the reader of Exodus, know this is God's plan all the way back from chapter 4 and verse 21. Look at chapter 4 and verse 21 with me. This is when we first read this. This is what the Lord says to Moses back in chapter 4. When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart, so he will not let my people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel, my firstborn son, is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship you. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Did you see, God has already decided his plan. He already knows that it's going to take the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn son, for Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. The the, the previous nine plagues, he knows, are not going to work. 
And yet we see him ruling his creation through his judgment. Not just because he can do mighty acts, but because he plans and he orders history to do these mighty acts, to demonstrate his total rule. Now, you might think the other side of the coin now, well, poor old Pharaoh. I mean, how can he deserve these terrible things he suffered? I mean, it's not his fault. God made him do it. So look at chapter 9 and verse 16. And the Lord says, but I've raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show my power and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. But the thing is, the Bible doesn't present Pharaoh as an innocent bystander in a divine game of chess. We're told time and time again, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And so the end of chapter 9, we just read, Pharaoh saw the rain and hail and thunder had stopped. He sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the Israelites go just as the Lord had said through Moses. Pharaoh sinned. Pharaoh is evil. In fact, Pharaoh does exactly what he wants. He decides not to let the Israelites go, and he's held accountable for it because that's what he wants to do. He goes on bargaining with God. Oh, he says, don't go too far because you've got to come back. Oh, you can't take your women and children, otherwise you won't come. No, you can't take your livestock. And eventually, he says to Moses at the end of chapter 10, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Of course, that's not really rejecting Moses. That's rejecting the God who sent Moses. That's Pharaoh's last word on God. Get out. You see, we're presented here with two great truths. The Lord rules. There is nothing in his creation he is out of control of, even the people who are rejecting him today. And at the same time, people are totally responsible for their actions. In our rebellion against God and our sin, we do what we want, and therefore we're accountable for it. And you know what? There should be great comfort in that. You see, if we see our right place in the universe as not God, as not in charge, there is great comfort in this. Because as we read Exodus, we see here is a God who can carry out his plans. Here is a God who even has superpowers under his control. Here is a God who kings and governments can't oppose. Here is a God, in fact, who has turned history to his purpose. And that means, I guess, for the first readers of Exodus, the Israelites probably waiting on the edge of the promised land to go in towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy. It means here is a God who will keep his promises and who will get us into this land. He will keep his side of the covenant. And of course, that's the same word of reassurance for us today. We have a God who rules over all history. A God who will do what he has said for his people. And so that means that that when the Lord Jesus says that he will return, he will return. And when the Lord Jesus says that he will judge the world and rid it of evil, he will rid the world of evil. 
And when he says that we will be with him forever in a beautiful new creation where there will be nothing other than the joy of knowing God even as we are known, we will be forever in a beautiful new creation. And we know when the Lord Jesus says he will take us there, he will take us there. Why? Because God rules even through judgment, even through pain, even through evil, even through heartache. He rules and he achieves his purposes. I don't know about you, but I I need to hear that. I need to hear that because of the way that our, our world is. I need to hear that because of the way our country is. I need to hear that because of the way my heart is. That through the mess and the chaos of both society and my own life, God rules. And though it might have been 2,000 years since Jesus strode the face of the earth, and though these last days seem to be stretching on, his rule has not changed. He is the Lord. And as I look back, I see, therefore, he has rescued me through judgment upon his Son. And I see him reveal his holy character through the cross as I see my sin has to be punished. And I know that he rules because he ordained and ordered history that his son might die and rise again. And therefore every promise he's made for today and tomorrow and forever he will keep. You see the biggest application I think in Exodus tonight is this our God is an awful lot bigger an awful lot more powerful an awful lot more holy than we treat him as day by day and that's a precious thing because without this God we are lost but with him we're a redeemed people a rescued people, a secure people, now and forever. Let's pray together.